0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Here are the aisles, the projectionist. Hi, I'm here with Yitzchok and Chava Kolokowski tonight. Um, Chava is very excited uh, to share with our listening audience Um I guess they have to have a, a, a membership in some way of the Criterion Channel, but that great English director who I guess cut his teeth with the, the BBC uh, creating these made-for-TV movies, these wonderful dramas uh, and comedies, uh, Mike Lee. And uh, Chava feels that these are classics and wonderful gems that people should try to take advantage of. So Chava, talk a little bit about some of these Mike Lee films that are now available uh, if you uh,
1: so Mike Lee made a series of short So the BBC had a show called Play for Wednesday but then like football games started to be shown on Wednesday so they had to switch it to a different day so they started calling it Play for Today so these series of short Mike Lee films that they just released and I mean just like since the first of the year they just released these on Criterion. None of them are long. I think Abigail's Party is the longest one. It's an hour and 45 minutes. None of them are very I'm thinking of specifically like Hard Labor is an hour and 13 minutes. Um, Nuts in May, I think, is also an hour an hour and 15 minutes. Home Sweet Home is an hour and 12 minutes. They're short. You know, they're not, you're not, it's not, trans- it's not um, T2 or anything. <laughs> So, you, it's little short bites, and um, these were not available in America for a very long time. Mike Lee is my favorite director, my favorite filmmaker of all time. And I was hollishing to see these movies, these little short BBC films, because I had seen all of his feature length stuff that he made in America, or I mean, made, had released in America. He made them all in England, but he released them in America. So, I, When these came out, I was just like, oh, my goodness. And they did not disappoint me. So Mike Lee has a very interesting filmmaking style. What he does is he writes a loose script, a basic plot, and basic character sketches. And what he does is he assembles the actors a couple of months ahead of shooting, and he makes them basically take the character sketches he's drawn up and formulate their own characters, and they live with each other with these characters for a little while in rehearsals and kind of a method acting sort of thing. And then they shoot the movies.
0: Improv. It's not it's like not, the movies aren't improv. It's just that he works it out with the actors, what the eventual dialogue is going to be.
1: Right, exactly. And so like, it's really um, very slice of life. It's very real and raw and he doesn't throw Any he doesn't have any pretense I would say the score is also very interesting it's always like these oompa loompa bases and brasses so they're pretty um it can add some humorous touches but it's also kind of in poignant moments also adds to the effect so anyway these short films are totally worth seeing Abigail's party was a stage play that he wrote so that one does not fit into the Devised my Mike Lee role. It's worth seeing, but I wanted to talk more about um, hard labor and some of the other more strict, strictly.
0: What today is called dramedies are these films slice of life, and, and in other words, it, it's not like necessarily narrative uh, driven. That there's going to be a big change from the beginning of the film to the end of the film. Is it more like? observational pieces of the type of normal things that happen to people. Is that what it's about?
1: Yes. Yes. It's literally like peeling back a layer of a dollhouse and looking in on this, you know, life, a little piece of some people's lives. And there's no villain and there's no heroes. Everybody's sort of flawed, but everybody's also sort of good. And there's a lot of, he pokes, fun at the class structure in Great Britain a lot. So if that's not your bag, I hear, but it, I personally find it very funny. So let me just talk about one. Let me break down this one that I absolutely love called "Hardly Lake 3, 1973. It's an hour and 13 minutes long. Basically, it's this middle-aged woman. She works as a housekeeper for a rich Jewish family, not rich, I want to say um, upper middle class Jewish family and she all she does basically is work for other people her grown children like her son she's just working for everybody and not really taking care of herself um, and this sound if this sounds bleak and horrible it kind of is but there are some humorous moments there's a really funny moment so her husband's a night watchman And he, you would think that he's the villain of this story because he's really kind of not very nice to her. But in honesty, everybody is, you see everyone's flaws and you see everyone's good points too. And you have a little sympathy for him. He gets dressed down by his boss. You know, he's this older man and here's this younger guy who's his boss. Who's telling him basically how to just, I don't know, be a night watchman, (laughs) which is a really basic job. And he comes home and he wakes her up in this hilarious scene where, you know, she spent the whole day slaving, working, taking care of other people. Finally, finally, she's in bed. The only thing she's probably done for herself all day is to take herself to bed. And her, her husband bursts in and he yells, Yoy, are you awake? (laughs) And the look on her face and the look on his face if you've ever been had a really hard week and then you get awakened by for almost no reason whatsoever. Um, you know, he just wants to hang out with her, have her, he has like rheumatism in his shoulder. He wants her to rub his shoulder and her face is just like, Oh my goodness, this again. So I'm not, Everyone should see this movie. I'm not giving anything away. Okay.
0: Nice. Um, hard labor is set in Southport. The scenes in the Stones house were shot in a house just two doors along from where the Lees had lived in Cavendish Road. So I guess they were more like the Lees were probably well off. <laughs> Let's see.
1: And they were um, Jews. And they were Jews. But I think he, if he wasn't working class, he definitely saw working class people and he has a really good handle on the working class. He has a really good handle on the upper middle class and he has a really interestingly good handle on people who believe that they're upwardly mobile. Do you know what I mean? Who think that, you know, who are trying to claw themselves up to the upper class and like what those sort of trappings are.
0: Right. So Lee himself, as we said, Lee is a Jewish fellow. and. Lee's his name was Lieberman. (laughs) Lieberman became Lee. Um, So he really, in a way, he's sort of like a, um, uh, you know, sort of like Harold, I mean, England's, you know, great playwrights of that period, Harold Pinter, uh, Mike Lee, the great television, the fact that he could write these stories and direct them and, you know, uh, so many of them. um, And they still stand the test of time.
1: I mean, they're really neat relatable Nets in May is another great one it's again very short it's about two different couples who find themselves camping on the same campground and how different they are and their interactions with each other and like this one gets annoyed at that one for you know that I think also- yeah. it's just if you relate to it so much like I totally feel that I've been in that situation whether it's at work Wherever you are, like you can relate to being annoyed by another person's idiosyncrasies and their foibles. And um, I
0: it's- think also um, um, Hard Labor might be one of the first films that features Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley as a small. It
1: is a very early Ben Kingsley. And I didn't even know it was Ben Kingsley, really. It's before Gandhi, but he's playing. I don't know if he's supposed to be Indian or Pakistani. He disappears into this role; could barely tell it's Ben Kingsley. I didn't even know it was him until the credits rolled. Um, But he's incredible in it, and he's
0: Kingsley plays a he plays a character called Nassim in this film. Uh, You know, I remember uh, some of Lee's. You know, his. uh, I agree with you, Lee uh, gives you life, but it's quite funny. I think his I think his films uh, they don't bring belly laughs. But I think that they, you, you laugh in recognition of seeing a reality, uh, portrayed. You know, it's a film. You know that there's, you said, although the dialogue originally was improvised, but you know that obviously he has a very distinct purpose in what each character is going to say, uh, because it's all part of, you know, his whole, uh, what he's after. But, uh, it's interesting, I think that that you know, in, in the United States, the '60s and '70s, these um, it, it's called um, these these play for play for Wednesday or play for a day. These are anthology series, and we need for some reason in America, the anthology series has to be science fiction, it has to be the Outer Limits, it has to be um, Twilight Zone, Amazing Stories. Uh, I, I think in England, what you have. Is slice of life week after week. And that, I think that, that, that tells you something about the sophistication of the British viewing audience. Right. uh, Which I think. It's pretty
1: interesting to see that you're right, that it's so different from how it would be presented in America. Um, And
0: I mean, even if you want to compare it to, let's say, um, what was in the 70s in the US, uh, the mystery movie. So you had. You know, you had to have, you know, Columbo and McLeod or uh, uh, Macmillan and wife. The story wasn't just about people. It was there was a murder that had to be solved. Uh, there was something that's going on. Um, and it, what's fascinating is that, you know, this what stays with you more: some sort of contrived uh, you know, murder plot. Uh, where you know the, the, the person is is found out at the end, and somehow the detective is able to work things out. Um, you know, e- even film noir, which you know we, we extol very much on this program, uh, has a certain arc of, uh, of of tragedy, an arc of failure. Um, there is going to be some sort of a third act where something very dramatic is going to happen. There's going to be a car chase. There's going to be some sort of thing you don't expect. It sounds like in the Lee films that, Chava, you are uh, promoting and that you like us, you like our audience to know about, don't expect any sort of big surprise in the third act. Don't expect (laughs) that.
1: No, there's really no um, huge denouement. There's no revelation you know there are revelations that they're very subtle and they're very much stuff that you might encounter in an everyday scene with your neighbors or with someone at shul or someone you work with um and it's or even in your own family i mean hard labor is a perfect example of that it just sort of peels back the layer on this you're just looking in on this family And there's something a little bit voyeuristic about it, but it's definitely no matter which Mike Lee little movie you choose, you'll find a character that you relate to a character that you've seen in someone else and how those play out. It's always sort of a wild ride (laughs) emotionally. And just sort of like, even if you're not emotional about it, like just to observe it and just look at it and see how he's, Laid it out. It's-
0: I think another thing we have to wow. mention is that, you know, in line with what Mike Lee was trying to do, he didn't gussy up his actors. You know, here in the oh, US, no. <laughs> no. Here in the, are you as handsome as Tom Cruise? Do you look like Nicole Kidman? Um, you know, whoever it is, who's the lead that's going to carry the film? Part of what he wants is actually people that look like everyday people.
1: Right. And even the actresses, you know, Alison Stedman, who ended up becoming Mike Lee's wife for a while, she's very beautiful and she's always really pretty in the in the in the movies, but she's it's she's not overly so, you know, she's sort of like the pretty girl on the block. Where the glamour, you know, the wife who's a little bit more glamorous than all the other wives. She's never like the knockout. She's never going to, you know, rise to the level of Margot Robbie. He just doesn't have that kind of person in his um, in his films. And you're right. They're not gussied up. In fact, in Home Sweet Home, which is one of the little play for today movies, like, there's this there. scene where a husband and wife are fighting. And the husband sees the wife is in distress. She's a very average looking lady, bless her. And the husband says, what's wrong? You know, what's wrong? And she says, you don't know, I have problems. And he said, what sort of problems? And she thinks for a moment, she says, I'm a very desirable woman. And just the, you know, seeing this very average lady who you could see walking down the block or shopping at Right, say I'm a very desirable woman and that this is her biggest problem in life. It's really funny, and we all know that lady. <laughs> you know what I mean.
0: Even though, again, you know, you're, you're zeroing in Chava on one aspect of it. I mean, I mean, basically the the structure is that you've got it's the story of these three postal workers, right? Right. And, and, and their interrelationship. There's three different couples that are, I, I'm just going to read to you something from Clive James. He says the gripping story of three postmen, and how practically nothing happened to them. <laughs> if, right. you ima- if you can imagine, if you can imagine Kosivantute—I don't know that, if I said that right with the music taken out, and then with the words taken out, and then with all the decor and the costumes replaced by the tackiest fabrics and furniture known to mortal man—you've got a movie by Mike Lee. <laughs> so basically,
1: uh, yes, yeah.
0: about not so. I think this leads in very well to, uh, what I would like to suggest. And it's also available, by the way, on the Criterion channel, uh, in their, um, section called Cinema Verité. Okay. Which, which is basically, uh, what it means is we're not commenting. We're not, it's not a documentary where this is the story of Elvis, and this is when he was born, and now here's Tupelo, and here's Memphis, and here's, you know, Sam, uh, you know, uh, by the Sun Records or whatever, and this is him getting fat, and drunk, and dying. Okay, it's not like a documentary, or even, you know, a documentary of, let's say, Woodstock of a certain time. It's basically just let the camera run, and here it is. You know, it's, 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 it's cinema verite. Um, so there are two, op, two two things there which I think uh, you could probably find on YouTube as well, uh, but they have collected it there. One of them is relevant, I think, to MLK day that we just passed. Uh, okay. Of course, we're, we're going to be entering a Black History Month, and I think it's worthwhile to see a, 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 a about a fifty minute film called Crisis. Now, as you know, uh, the civil rights movement was a long, hard struggle. It didn't happen with a snap of the fingers. Um, it took a while and there were many states that were recalcitrant. The last state to stand against the integration of black students into their universities was Alabama. Those of you that, uh, maybe you've seen it and our listeners might be familiar with, of course, one of the earlier scenes in Roberts and Forrest Gump, where uh, Forrest is a student in Tuscaloosa in the University of Alabama. And he gets, he's there when the two black students are being brought into uh, the university and standing in the hallway, standing, not allowing them to pass through, is Governor George Wallace. Now, in uh, Forrest Gump, uh, Forrest says, that man that was standing there in the, in the doorway, I heard that later he came, he wanted to run for president and then he got shot. So anyway, Zemeckis and his screenwriters are trying to say that, well, you see what happened to Wallace. Wallace was a terrible racist and you see that he was involved, he had a violent negative nature. When you sow hate, what is it that you reap? If you watch this film, however, which, again, obviously the people involved in it knew that the ABC cameras were there, but they basically filmed in 1963, George Wallace, because they knew it was happening. George Wallace from Montgomery to Tuscaloosa, Robert Kennedy from his home in suburban Washington at the time, and his office where he was working on the Justice Department, John F. Kennedy. and uh, in the White House, and you've never seen really the Oval Office done as openly as this with the uh, Assistant Attorney General, that whose name was uh, Katzenbach, and uh, he was the uh, eventually Katzenbach became the Attorney General uh, under uh, Johnson um, as as well. So he was a uh, so those four. You have cameras in all four places dealing with this crisis. The crisis is they know that Wallace is going to stand there. Are they going to federalize the National Guard? We know what happened, of course, in Little Rock, which is when you had actually a sort of standoff between the National Guard and actual troops that were brought in from uh, army bases. But really, there was there's a clause that allows although the National Guard technically answers to the governor because they're there to protect the state, they are essentially federal troops. And if a uh, if a if there's a uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the what it's called, but if the uh, if it's given over to the judge uh, a mandate from the Justice Department that flips the National Guard and Turns them into troops under the president. Because Wallace, so in this case, Wallace had the National Guard with him. He also had all the state troopers in Alabama. And they were all there providing the type of muscle and intimidation not to allow the uh, integration to occur. So the camera really takes you into these people's, as we say, and you see that Wallace isn't the monster that he's made out to be. You can get a sense of what was the uh, the feeling of the uh, segregationists. Um, you see that even in Wallace's house, ironically, there is a black maid. You see him lovingly embrace his granddaughter. You see Wallace being spoken to by people in the street who are all very, uh, who praise him, for his stance and what he's going to do, that he's going to stand up. And you also hear Wallace explain how he believes in his heart, and he's a God-fearing man, and he believes in God, and he believes it's right, and therefore he believes in his heart that the races need to be separate. He believes that this is the, what's better for humanity. And he definitely can't admit or in any way fathom that he should be labeled evil for what he feels. Um, so Rebekah
1: are we feeling sympathy for him? Like by seeing him in this natural state? Like, are we empathizing I, with him?
0: I, I think, I, I think first of all, it takes the fangs off of Wallace. Um, okay. And I, I think also, as, as, as obvious, he knew who his, who his constituents were. He knew he had, and again, remember ABC, this happened in July of, it was during the summer session of 1963. The special aired one month before John F. Kennedy was shot in October 1963. It took a number of months for for them to splice the film together. But to answer your question, I think you need to recognize in, in this cinema verite that these are real people that are being filmed who know they're being filmed. And they realized Wallace knew that he had to speak to his audience. He had to speak to his people. I think, I don't know if he was trying to convince others to join the segregationist movement. But I think he was trying, I think by seeing this film, you understand how, at least the depth of feeling against what they saw as the boot and tyranny of the government. You also see references when Wallace walks in his in the governor's mansion to various Civil War heroes, and he talks about the Civil War, which, by the way, in the South, we call the war between the states. They don't call it the Civil War. And he talks, Chaba and Yitzchok. he talks about the fact that they were brave people on both sides. Um, and he talks about the, the, the reason why the South lost is because they were outnumbered. And that is also true. There was greater numbers in the, in the North. The North had a larger army. And it's interesting to hear that mindset. I'm not saying that it's not terrible. I'm not saying that, that I agree with it. But it's interesting to see that perspective from where it was. right? Um, and, 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 and it doesn't convince you. And and it, you can see that something could be like sort of like Hannah Arendt said about the banality of evil, um, and you can see how evil or this negative thing entrenches itself, and yet it doesn't necessarily create monsters. Um, you also see Jack Kennedy, I think, in a less than. Um, you know, usually, you know, Jack Kennedy is so handsome, he's good looking, he's so noble. I think of, or he's this big uh, adulterer who's running around with Marilyn Monroe and all other these women. I think this sort of like is a, a balanced portrait of Kennedy in this hour. You see that he's worried. He doesn't know. He, he wants to have civil rights legislation that he feels might get derailed if everybody sees them pick George Wallace up And dump him away. You also see Bobby in a different light. I grew up seeing Bobby as a saint. Uh, Bobby was this martyr along with Martin Luther King who died just months after during his uh, election campaign. And of course he entered the campaign later because he wanted to uh, provide what he felt would be a real voice to unify America and so many people felt that along with martin luther king's assassination uh john f kennedy uh, robert kennedy's assassination was another sign of uh, of how terrible and desperate things were that that our savior had died this film really shows him as an operator again we know he worked with roy cohen in the 1950s uh in the mccarthy hearings uh we know that he was not uh, squeaky clean but this film, really, you see him. You see him as a family man. Um, he's, he's, you definitely see him as a family person. But you also see how he was uh, a, 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 a vehement, uh, aggressive person. And he is ready in the talks with JFK. He's ready to put, he says, look, Wallace gets in the way. We're going to push him away. We're going to pick him up and move him. And John F. Kennedy is a little bit worried about that. He's worried about the optics, as we would say today. And he realizes that if uh, Wallace, who is, for many people, a mouthpiece, gets gets trampled on, then the type of legislation that JFK wants, civil rights legislation that will slowly change America for years and years to come won't happen. So he doesn't want to have this conflagration occur. So I think you see, uh, 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 and you see his hesitancy I'm not saying you see the wisdom of Lincoln, but it is similar somewhat to the way Lincoln, uh, uh, also moved, uh, when he was talking about, uh, the, to pass the 14th amendment. So I think the film gives you access that you usually do not see at all. Also, the under the, the assistant attorney general, um, you can see his, uh, again, who was a Katzenbach who came from a, an incredibly uh, important family in terms of his own service. He was a, just like John F. Kennedy. He also, I think, was uh, was captured in World War II. Um, he worked his way through law school, uh, and also was a, a a brilliant person. You can also see his steely um, uh, commitment about what was going to happen on the next day, how he is going to deal with with Wallace uh, when that occurs. There's also wonderfully behind the scenes uh, filming of the two black students. And Katzenbach, who is no racist, speaks to them in a way that we today would consider very condescending. When he tells them, make sure, he says, do not interact. Do not, you know, like it's almost like don't be uppity. Uh, don't scream back. Go in with dignity. You should dress like you're going to church. Um and, and again, that's really reflective of what the world was like 60 years ago. But you know, today, uh, I'm sure Black audiences watching this uh, would, 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 be re- would be repulsed by the type of advice that was being given. Now, again, the, 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 the female student actually was on the cover of Time. She was an attractive girl, uh, and she was very well-spoken. But it's interesting to see uh, the dynamics there. And it really is unlike uh, a documentary. It really is in many ways uh, it, it doesn't make the comment. It shows you what happened. It actually you know Wallace did stop them from going, and the afternoon, uh, they were able to get the uh, the ruling from the judge to federalize the troops. At that point, Wallace stepped down and went back in the car and says, "Well we're going to see because nineteen sixty four is only a year away." And we'll see if the, uh, you know, if they're going to be able to get the votes. Of course, Kennedy's assassination meant that the great outpouring of sympathy to the Democrats meant that there was going to be a landslide victory. Um, had Kennedy not been assassinated, who knows? I mean, clearly he was a very, uh, charismatic and strong leader. The question is, um, you know, could, could, could there have been, you know, Barry Goldwater, who eventually, you know, his, uh, his students end up taking the White House, eventually in the form of Reagan later. But it's interesting to see uh, 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 that slice of history there. That's called crisis. There's another thing there that I would also recommend it's from the Mazels brothers. Mazels brothers were two Jewish. Yeah. You know who they are, right? Oh
1: yeah! Oh my goodness, Grey Gardens and Salesman.
0: Right. So I want to talk about Salesman.
1: So, oh yeah, let's talk about Salesman. I know this film very well.
0: Okay, so you can find Salesman on YouTube. I'm sure in other places. Um, uh, they weren't able. Uh, the Mazels brothers uh, had been involved in filmmaking for years. They'd done. They'd worked for others. Anyway, they, 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 when they discovered, uh, that they weren't able to get their films released the way they wanted to, they formed their own production company. And if you've ever seen the original poster for salesman, it's an incredible poster. It's basically, uh, it's Jesus walking, holding a sale, uh, holding a sample case, two sample cases with a halo over his head. Uh, that was the, uh, who they came up with because basically these two Jewish brothers, uh, make a film about selling Bibles in Catholic areas in the Boston area and in Florida. Um, they, they, they filmed for probably they probably had hours and hours and hours of film that they were able to cut, but it's basically the story of, uh, of a five salesman. Um, and, um, Although the, you know, you sort of, again, you, you're hoping to get a little bit of everyone. If you remember, usually it mostly centers on Paul, who is a uh, Irish fellow, um, and he seems to be the least successful of these salesmen. But really more important than Paul's story is really the fact that here you have what all of us in the, the monotheistic world consider the great gift Right? Of the revelation, although of course this has the New Testament as well, which we don't believe was part of that revelation, but still, let's, let's, let's assume that it's all part of the revelation from God, and it's, it's really drenched in the consumerism, right? Here you have these four guys, Gaba, who are, you know, they have, they've got so many different ways to pitch this. This is something that will never grow old. This is something that will never lose its value. This is something that will influence you, and it's going to be great for you and the kids. For you and the
1: family, the family heirloom.
0: Yes. And, 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 And you realize when you see them off, when they're not in the apartments with those people, and most of the people they're trying to sell to are people who can't make their next mortgage payment, who are struggling to put anything into the refrigerator. And these guys says, well, you can give us cash now, or you can go on the plan. And if you go on the plan, you know, it's, it's an honor plan. And, you know, this is, tell us what you can give a month. And and you can see the desperation that everybody has. Right. You know, un- unlike other films where, well, the salesmen are the evil, are the evil people. Right, right. Evil. These
1: guys are in the same boat as the people they're trying to pitch to. They're just trying to, you know. <laughs> I know every make their that.
0: right, and I, I love the way in the film uh, they knock on the door and they say, "I'm from the church," right? Yeah. Oh, I'm from the church, right? Right? Instead of saying hello, right? I, you don't know me, but my name is Paul Brennan. I said, "Oh, uh, it's, it's it's Paul Brennan from the church." All of these people somehow, when they've gone to church on Sunday, have somehow signed their names to something, and this American Bible Company. Is because I guess they're providing um, Bibles and other sort of church material. Um, I forgot what it's called, Chaba. Uh, the hymn book has a special name to it. I forgot what it's called.
1: A hymnal. No. A missile a missile. A missile. a missile. a
0: missile. a missile, right?
1: That's only in the Catholic Church, so that they right. use So they
0: send them, they also print missiles for everyone. So I think because of that, they got the names and the addresses of people in the church. Then, the American Bible Company, you know, gives this uh, gives gives these names and addresses to their salesman, and then the salesman, since they have their addresses, then goes and tries to sell them either this fifty dollar Bible. you Can imagine fifty dollars. Talking about sixty years ago, today we're probably talking about, about Encyclopedia answers to all these questions, it's like a, a multi-volume encyclopedia. That, and of course, we as religious Jews can imagine Art Scroll or Feldheim or someone coming up with you know a family-friendly you know book on science or a book to answer your questions about communism, uh, and they they try to pitch that as well. And um, uh, the it, it, we you talk about Mike Lee. I mean, you can't get more Mike Lee, more real, than seeing these images of these guys who, in the daytime, are driving around trying to find uh, the homes, um, and then they come back at night, and they all they seemingly the Bible Company makes them stay as roommates, like I guess two or three to a room in some seedy motel uh, where they're staying, and you know they're and, and, and in those motel rooms they they're exchanging. Um, they're discussing about how many uh, Bibles they sold and how many they did. What is everything like? And you know, they, they all put on different accents. And in fact, if you remember, they sort of work together with each other. Like, like right. one sales, one salesman say, well, you know, uh, the district manager will be here in a couple of minutes or he happens to be around. So they sort of like talk with each other before about how you said that your favorite rendition of uh, if I were a rich man, was from Sammy Davis Jr. on The Julie Andrews Show. Right, yeah. I want to add to that, Paul Brennan, Irish Bible salesman from Boston. Oh, yeah. uh, as (laughs) As he is trying to find these homes, slipping and sliding in his rental car all throughout Boston. He's singing from house to house, if I were a rich man, yadda yada, yada, yadda yada, yada. and here he is going, trying, you know, uh, and you can see what this is about. Um, I, I want to say there's one, there's a, there's another incredible scene in the film where you see the convention in Chicago. Oh and, yeah. And the, the, uh, if you remember, I forget his name is Middleman. I don't think he's a Jew at all, but he is sort of like the, the advisor to the American Bible Company, he is this theologian, but also telling them how important it is to 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 be God's person, to actually go with the energy of God, to go make these sales, be like Jesus when he was young, um, and, and and he tells them it isn't about the money; it's about knowing how you're changing the world and making the world better, and how you represent an agent of of of, of, uh, of, of destiny, and and they all. Yes. And one guy stands up and says, I'm going to make $50,000 this year. You can imagine what that means in 1967.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, That's a really depressing scene, I think. <laughs> I always <laughs> feel bad for those guys there. Makes me feel good about my own job.
0: <laughs> and, and and you can see the difference between frustration and uh, determination. Uh, who makes the sale and who doesn't. Um and you also can see the desperation of, of. of, of and you talk about, again, a s- slice of life. When you're trying to make the pitch, you, you, you grasp for straws, you grasp for anything. Like maybe you can, right? Like there's one person, her name is Mrs. I forgot what her name is, Mrs. O'Connor, and but she's Polish and she's married to a guy named O'Connor. So, oh, Brent, right. so, so he says, "Oh, O'Connor, you're, you're a great Irishman." No, I'm Polish actually. You know, oh, Poles, they're all so great in terms of their Catholicism, and they're all great Poles and, and Irish. Um, I thought also one of the most surreal parts of the film is they're getting lost, and they're in Ocala, Florida. And in Opelika, in Opalaka, Florida, the whole city was was I don't know who the city planner was or the architect. The theme of the city is an old Arabic town, as if it's some sort of Hollywood version of Baghdad. Um the, the city hall looks like some sort of you know Arabic type of mosque. All the city names are Sinbad, Alibaba.
1: Right? <laughs> it's like a giant bungalow colony from the lawsuit
0: that was filed by the Masles brothers against the new yorker magazine and pauline kale pauline kale felt that this type of cinema verite this was a setup that this was it attempts to show what's really going on but you know she uh, she she makes it seem that that since you know the cameras are there and since these actors know what's going on it's a phony. It's not really a slice of life. The, the measles want you to have this idea of what to take you from point plot A1 to plot B and to show the desperation of Brennan. And they were going to sue for libel because although it's true, you know, and again, this is really an interesting question. Uh, when you put cameras on someone, Uh, and and today we're so used to it because I think all these television shows are these phony, they're all phony documentaries like The Office and some of these other programs or the, or or the, or the programs that, that, that these, these shows like Survivor, uh, she, she makes it seem that, that since you know the cameras are there and since these actors know what's going on, it's a phony. It's not really a slice of life. The, the measles, want you to have this idea of what to take you from point plot A1 to plot B and to show the desperation of Brennan. And they were going to sue for libel because although it's true, you know, and again, this is really an interesting question. Uh, When you put cameras on someone uh, and, and today we're so used to it because I think all these television shows are these phony they're all phony documentaries like the office and some of these other programs or the or, or, the, or the programs that, that that these these shows like survivor or these shows like um um uh, the um, the race for the millions what, what's it called again you know what i'm talking amazing about race. Um, amazing race all of these shows work with the, the the various contestants speaking to the camera about what was going on um and and you and you again we sort of bought into the fact that even when you're under the camera, you forget the camera's there. This is really true, and this is really happening. And Pauline kale really raises the point that when you're making a show and you're planning on distributing this and making money, you can't really trust that to really be the slice of life. Um, and so, I, can we ever really know? Perhaps we can't, but these things I think come close. I can tell you that my feeling is is that you do forget. You know, again, you know the camera's there. And you're not going to. Perhaps you're not going to be as ultra aggressive as you would normally. But I do think th- that once you get used to the fact that this film crew is following you around, I think you do act pretty close to normal. I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think it's it's, it's is, is it a fiction we'd like to buy into that 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 these producers can really give us? Life?
1: We have the Eddie Adams photographers come and photograph us twice and they followed us around for a few days and we I never got used to it I was always like on edge I didn't feel I felt weird even though they were very nice and very personable and I didn't feel uncomfortable you know with them I just felt like I always had to be on Uh, again maybe if it's maybe if it is that it um doing it for weeks you know doing it for a long time like the Mazels brothers were doing then maybe it wouldn't be so you know maybe you would get used to it especially if you're at work you know and you're trying to close that deal maybe maybe i don't know
2: hard to say i, mean, I think all these things are as close as we're going to get because you know no, nothing is really real not not the uh not the YouTube channels that they have now. None of the, none of the reality shows that we have are real, but it's all of these things that we're describing here are the closest things that we are going to get. You know, it's, it's, uh, it is with- of life. Is it Mike Lee's,
0: um, you know, worked out carefully? slice of life based on his memories and based on what the various actors bring to it is that more this is the way life is or is going out and filming life without necessarily a uh, uh without necessarily an agenda and just letting the cameras run and then editing it down is that life i i guess a case can be made that what lee did in the bbc is more reflective of real life than these, uh, what the Maisels brothers are doing. I think the argument could be made that way, no?
1: Well, the thing I think is that they're both art. One is sort of a fictionalized version of real life, and one is real life through the lens of two artists. You know what I mean? I mean, the Maisels brothers are real really good at what they do. They're really good at bringing us that sort of thing. But it's all art, and it's all reflection. You know, we're all seeing it through the artist's lens. Just seeing the water flowers through Monet's lens. We're seeing Starry Night through Van Gogh's lens. You know, like, it's just through the artist's lens, and it's your own interpretation is, like, what the reality is.
0: these differences are is that there's a script that we had in mind. Whatever you want to say, Pauline Kael's criticism notwithstanding, There isn't, it's open-ended. The fact that one of the salesmen realizes that he doesn't have what it takes and that he probably isn't going to continue in that job, that isn't necessarily the way this, where the way things were written originally. The difference is, is that because he knows the cameras are on him, he perhaps acts in a different way than the types of, uh, pensive, uh, reflective moments that a Mike Lee or another filmmaker might be able to capture. So, you know, I I think that's probably, you know, where, you know, where you have, you know, six
2: of one, half a dozen of the other, where does, where do you eventually get. thing that on Martin Luther King day this year was the yard site, 50th yard site of AJ Heschel, who was a good friend of Martin Luther King. And just before his Patera, he was interviewed on you know, JTS had at first a radio show, then a television show, uh, called Eternal Light, uh, that was on for many, many decades for about 50 years from starting in radio and, and most of the time on television. And usually they were dramatic shows, but there was an interview with, with Heschel just before his, his passing. And he, and I think he's kind of reflecting on some of these things that we have here. There's one time during that interview, he says the following. Uh, I I would say to young people a number of things, and I only have one minute. I would say, let them remember there's meaning beyond absurdity. Let them be sure that every little deed counts, that every word has power, that we do everyone our share to redeem the world in spite of all absurdities and all the frustrations and all the disappointment. And above all, remember the meaning of life is to live life as if it were a work of art, which I guess, you know, it's, Reflecting on the idea of Tzuri Yisrael meaning that sire, that the burnish Shalom is an artist. And, and the, I saw a lot of people reflecting on this, uh, today when I was reading about this was, was that, you know, people, American Jews outside of our community, when they found Heschel, who was bringing the, the spirituality of Hasidus to the conservative and, and outside of the outside of the Orthodox world in in a way that was unique. Um, I think part of that was uh, that they said was that, you know, people always saw the difference between Judaism and Christianity was that, you know, Christianity was about the feeling, was about the, the faith. Judaism was about what are works. you doing? You know, it's the, the question of works versus faith. And, You know, um, Heschel. You know, had to express his faith through the works, of course. But he had that spirituality that so many American Jews had no had no connection to, and he kind of opened that door to people. And I think that's what this idea of living life as a work of art. You know, it's there's a, a certain message. You know, we're asking this question about. You know, being on the camera, and is this really real? And and you know, are are we ever really real? You know, there was the story that someone uh, asked Satmarovs on Purim if he could nochmachim. him, and uh, and it, so it was it was on Purim and this year. He brought out a, ta- a talis and a kittel, and he started uh, imitating Satmarovs uh, his 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 and uh, Yom Kippur. And, uh, and Satmaravi started crying and this, and they, and they were afraid that the, you know, Balagin said, no, no, he's saying, I, am I just Nochmach myself? Am I just an imitation of myself? You know, but the truth is, if we, if we understand there's an iron, Roya voice and Roy in Shema's, the films
0: are there to us, as, as, as Chaba says, to look through the lens and to then shoot the lens back on us. Um, you know, if, if we can take something out of the pathos of Paul Brennan, the Bible salesman, if we could also maybe even think of somehow the hypocrisy that we all, many rabbinic figures engage in, where although they're selling spirituality in the back room, they want to make sure they get the raise. So there are elements that the film can bring a message to us. And it, whether it's the messages, again, it, whether it's George Wallace recognizing how. Uh, one can hold on, uh, to perhaps the most, uh, mendacious and ugliest of ideals and still look in the mirror and see themselves as a good person or the struggles that, uh, of, of the, of the average, uh, working class person and realize what those yeah. things are about, uh, and, and, and using film as a way to reflect back in our lives. It's, 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 it's difficult, Yitzhak without film or without some sort of, um, without some sort of uh, filter to be able to hear a message like Heschel's, Sometimes what we need is what Nosan Anovi did to Dovodah Melech, right? Yeah. When Dovodah Melech had basically, in his own mind, been 100% correct in sending um, Uriah to the front and taking Batsheva, he needs to hear a story. And it's only when that story is spelled out so graphically by the Navi that, and then the Navi flips the switch and tells him, you're that person. That's when David is able to really use that story to come backwards. So that created that story is what it was able to reach the greatest heart of the Jewish people, David HaMelech. So, I would say, in that spirit, um, we can all take some sort of message and, and hopefully imbibe it in a way where it isn't just falling asleep on the couch, but actually arresting us to uh, to a, a higher and greater sense of what we are capable of. Whether it means to learn as as a morality play, or to actually see within those characters, those elements of defeat and despair and hypocrisy of ourselves and try to move beyond them. So that's it, my friends. Watch your step on the way out. Thanks a lot, Chaba. We'll talk next time, of course. Criterion, I think, is going to have to pay us. (laughs) for.
1: Yeah, we need to be sponsored.
0: Yes, for this service. But again, I I think... (laughs) (laughs) Thank everybody. Watch your step on the way out. Be well.